So welcome back. Um, and uh, we've got another week of Song of Solomon. Our, uh, our goal today is to find our way right to the very center of the, this book uh, by the end of our hour. And uh, so we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, but uh, as we start, there are handouts back there on the table if you need one. As we start, I want to just uh, recap uh, some of the things that we, we talked about last week and answer a couple really good questions that were asked of me that clear, I obviously didn't make clear. I'm going to try again. Um, and and uh, yeah, my wife can uh, testify that I, I fail at clarity uh, pretty much daily. So we'll see if we can get it accomplished today. Um, so interpretation and purpose um, of, of this, we, we said that, that this uh, is a song, it's poetry, it's a love story, and of course it's God's word. Uh, there have been over throughout the history of, of interpretation sort of two big buckets, two big categories uh, for how to understand this. Uh, one is, is really a horizontal primary interpretation, that is that it's primarily a love story about two people in history, and, and another is that the primary interpretation is more vertical, that it primarily is a description of, of God and his people, and, and this is the center or the, the, the starting place of the love story. Um, I'm going to be arguing that primarily uh, the, this is about two people historically, uh, because we're given their names, we're given touch points in history um, of, uh, and events and settings that are, that are real and, and, and practical, but it is more than that. Um, as God's word, um, we, uh, and, and together with Solomon and the Shulamite, uh, not only rejoice in each other and in their relationship, they rejoice in the God who has given them uh, this relationship. And so I think that that twofold purpose uh, is, is what, what I'm going to be arguing as we go through this. First of all, uh, that this is, a, this is a real relationship between two real historical people um, in space and time who, who you know, get to know one another, who, who get married, who, who have a relationship, and, and in the midst of that are rejoicing in the very good gift that God has given them and rejoicing in that God who, who has given it to them. Um, so... That is, that is uh, one of the main things that I wanted to, to just set clear in terms of what's the purpose of this book? Why do we, why do we have it? Why do we read it? Uh, there's more that we'll cover as we go along today and next week, but th that's the, the big blocks here. But there are two more uh, key items that I want to make clear um, because they actually bookend the, uh, what we're going to talk about today in chapter 2, verse 7, and then in chapter 5, verse 1. So uh, the, the first, which is actually the very end of, of today, uh, while we will interpret this naturally and historically, um, yeah, Song of Solomon gives us uh, a celebration of God's good gift of intimacy within marriage, and in turn, a celebration of God himself. Go ahead and turn to... Uh, it's the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1. We're going we're gonna to get to the end first. I want you to see this. 
it's just the last two lines of chapter 5, verse 1. Somebody, and, and this is the pinnacle of the entire book. I'm giving away the, the punchline here. This is the pinnacle of the entire book. And somebody, not, not he or not she, but somebody is saying to them, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. So we're going to come back to this and we're going to ask the question, who, who has the right to say that? Who, who, who can declare sort of this benediction over the physical intimacy within marriage? So we'll, just, we'll hold that for now. I mean, the answer is, I, I, I believe that this is God. We'll come back to that and I'll explain why uh, when we get back to it. But, but that's the, the, the first uh, thing that I, I want to make clear is, is that beyond just describing sort of a how-to uh, manual for married people, um, that, that this is beyond and above uh, Solomon and um, his bride. And here is uh, a, a couple other things that I want you to see. Turn back to the left with me to Proverbs chapter 5, because we're going to see this, the same thing that we've uh, here that we, we will see in Song of Solomon. Proverbs chapter 5. This is Solomon writing to his sons, um, commending on behalf of God the exclusive nature of physical intimacy within marriage. So Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15. And you could preface this the same way you would chapter 5, verse 1. My son, my son, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. So, Song of Solomon does not stand alone um, in, in providing uh, the description of the joy that is, that is part and parcel of physical intimacy within marriage and, and God's direction thereunto. Um, so he's, yeah, here Solomon is, is giving wise counsel to his sons uh, using the language of rejoicing, of delight, even being intoxicated with marital love. Um, he is, he's simply reflecting God's heart on this matter. Ephesians 5, we won't turn to it, but, but there Paul calls on husbands to love their wives in the likeness and the echo of Christ's love for the church in terms of sacrifice and sanctification, of splendor and selflessness, uh, of sustenance and savoring. And Paul even goes so far to declare that a Christian marriage is, is a living, walking parable of the gospel itself, of, of Christ and the church. So this, while Song of Solomon begins as this human relationship, it's, it's, it's more. It points to more uh, than, than merely a human relationship. Okay, so that's the first big point of, of interpretation and purpose. And the second actually is our segue um, back to Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 7. 
I told you we, uh, when we were here two weeks ago that I had more on this, and, uh, and this is our time for this. Um, if you haven't found Song of Solomon yet, by the way, just find Isaiah and, and, and turn left, and you'll, you'll run right into him. Um, so the last time, let me read uh, Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 7. I adjure you, this is, this is she, the Shulamite speaking, I adjure you, or I, I put you on oath, or I call you to promise these things, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases so last time we saw uh, the Shulamite sick with love, that's chapter 2, verse 5. We saw she and Solomon in an embrace, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, and immediately she breaks out with this adjuration or this oath, um, and she is calling on herself and the daughters of Jerusalem and to some degree all who read this psalm to promise to not fan into flame uh, the embers of desire until the time is right. So this, this points to, and we'll, and we'll see the same thing actually in chapters 3 and in chapters and chapter 8. So it, it helps us understand that, that this is not um, merely a story of, of some free-for-all hedonistic love. This is, it, is, it is a governed desire uh, within the boundaries that God has declared. Um, God has made this, this clear, Genesis 2, uh, verse 24. Uh, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Written even before there was a mother and a father on, on the earth uh, to, to leave. Um, God is giving the design for what a one, the, the, the context within which a one flesh relationship exists. Hebrews 13.4, the writer says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So there's there's a whole constellation of scriptures around the almost sacred nature of physical intimacy within marriage. So while the song celebrates this, it also takes seriously the power and the dangers of, uh, of desire in other settings. Uh, when it's using the words not to, not to stir up or awaken, it's, it's, it's the idea of almost creeping past that sleeping lion and, uh, and don't, don't awaken this until you're ready uh, for what the consequences thereof. Um, and so in this way, uh, the song is doing two things at the same time. Uh, it's, it's making clear that there are both right times and wrong times for physical intimacy, for passion to be turned loose, um, which, by the way, implies that, right, that if there are rules, there's a rule giver. Right? That's, rules don't just pop out of thin air. Right? So there's a, there's a tacit declaration of God ruling the universe. Uh, but second, it provides clear instruction and hope uh, for, for any readers or hearers um, here of this uh, book who are, who are not currently in a marriage relationship because you are reminded that there, there is a right time for this and there is a wrong time for this and that God seeks to bless his people who obey. Okay. Um, to, to paraphrase one commentator <clears throat> that uh, 
wrote extensively about this, the Shulamite urges us all to be aware of these temptations, not because intimacy is inherently dirty or vile, but precisely because it is so beautiful and potent. Uh, It's a glorious gift given to us by God, intended to bond two people inseparably together for life by its unique and overwhelming power. Um, And I yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful a statement and acknowledging this, this oath that, that she is calling uh, upon herself and the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, there is, a, there is a question you should be asking yourself. What does it mean to be um, making an oath by the does and the gazelles? You know, aren't, aren't oaths supposed to be made by, you know, uh, only in, to God, right, or by God, uh, a vow? Uh, what, what's, what's behind this? Um, and, and where is God in, in the Song of Solomon? So, so two things. Uh, first, like Esther, uh, where, where God's name and presence really isn't uh, directly uh, listed, yet his, his influence through providence is crystal clear everywhere in, in all the events that take place. I think the same thing we see here uh, in the song God's gracious hand is evident in the celebration of love, the restraint um, of, of physical intimacy when not appropriate, uh, and in the obedience of, of these people, as we'll see. Now, to the oath. This is, this is interesting. I don't want to overblow this, uh, but um, to, for whatever it's worth, I had this clarified as well from, from Jason Cruz. So, so uh, he's, he's my, my local Hebrew expert. It turns out that, uh, that by, the, by the does and the gazelles in Hebrew sounds almost exactly like by Yahweh of hosts, that is what we would say Lord Sabaoth, and by God Almighty. It's almost as if the author is seeking a way, short of saying God's name out loud, to, to almost give words that, that the original Israel, Israelite hearers would immediately say, Wow, that sounds just like God's name, almost. Um, and be reminded of, of God's rules and his guidelines within this. So uh, in, in the end, we don't, we don't have a watertight argu- argument for the, the absence of, of God's name, but clearly his presence is here uh, in the behavior of, of the people. So with that recap, on we go. And we're going to go quickly. Um, we're going to read it all, but, but uh, my, my comments will be limited here. So chapter 2, verse 8. We're going to read the rest of, of chapter 2. Um, and this section I've entitled, Be a Gazelle. So this is, this is uh, the Shulamite continuing to be our storyteller here. So starting in verse 8. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills, My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. 
O my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. Okay. So, so briefly, to, to walk through this, so Shulamite continues to be our storyteller. She's relating uh, what she sees, what she hears. Um, she's thrilled to hear and to see her beloved. She tells us his words that he speaks to her, and then she tells us her response. This is a, this is a new setting. We had been out in the pastures grazing. We had been in a vineyard or, or in, a, in a grove of trees. And now uh, we, she is at home. Structurally, this passage uh, builds from each end to the very center with, with him describing twice, calling to her, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. And he enters, leaping over the mountains like a gazelle, and at the end, she tells him, or asks him to depart and be a gazelle um, on the mountains. So, uh, and we see, as we had seen last week, her references to him as my beloved five times bracket his two references to her as my love. Now his call uh, to her to come away is because winter is over, spring has come. It's just like this week in North Texas, right? You, you, had to, you, you have to be blind and deaf and have no nostrils to, to have missed what's happening outside and around us, right? Even after the, the cold weather, everything's greening up, right? It's coming back to life. Things are budding and blossoming. And, and this is what's going on here, what's, what he's describing. And, right, love is in the air, uh, springtime. And uh, he desires to behold her face and to hear her voice. Um, verse 15 introduces at least potential trouble. Uh, the, the grammar here allows that it could be a continuation of his words, uh, or uh, it could be the beginning of her words. Um, but the, the point is clear. Foxes mess up vineyards, right? Because foxes love grapes. Yeah, so, so there are potential problems. We don't, we don't know. They're not described for us. Um, uh, but, but they are concerned to take care that their relationship, um, that the fidelity that they have had thus far, that they maintain as they wait. Um, and so as they do this, they, they need to, they know that they need to both um, not let their desires dominate them, nor let others intrude into their vineyard relationship. And... Uh, because it's fragile, it's bud, just like the springtime around them, it's budding and it's fragile and uh, just beginning to grow. Her response um, in, in verses 16 and 17, uh, first, she declares her unqualified, unconditional commitment to him. 
because she's about to tell him something that he doesn't want to hear. But she begins by saying, uh, my beloved is mine and I am his. Um, I heard my wife say that to me last week and I just about melted. So that's, yeah, so that, was, that was lovely. Um, but so unqualified and unconditional commitment to one another, but she, in, in, in different words that, than she had used in chapter 2, verse 7, is, is drawing on this same uh, oath that she has stated before, saying it's not the right time. Uh, we need to wait until the day breathes, as, as verse 17 says in the ESV, um, and the shadows flee. So you get the idea, shadows flee at midday, right? Because the sun comes up and shadows flee. Uh, they also flee when the sun goes down, but the sense is that this is, this is the idea of the, the picture of the dawning of their relationship, that it's, that it's tender and new and the full day has not yet uh, come upon their relationship. And so she lovingly encourages her gazelle to be a gazelle <laughs> and, to, and to turn back to the mountains um, because the time is not right. Um, so an application or, or summary here, I think, it's, I think it's fairly straightforward that while the budding relationship is presented with great splendor and beauty, um, if the time is not right, the time is not right. If, and uh, God's good gift is, of intimacy has a fence around it and an entryway uh, through which one must pass. The Shulamite uh, serves uh, today's uh, unmarried men and women well as she's obedient to the Lord here. Um, while she's gentle and kind and, and reminds her, her beloved, I'm his, he is mine, but the time is not right. Okay. She is, she is first obedient to the Lord. Okay. So on we go. Next section. Chapter 3, the first five verses. We have a new setting. We go from the the dawn of a spring day to nighttime. And she is continuing to speak. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Okay. So and we have a new setting, and, and by night, you'll see, attend to that in, in verse 1, on my bed by night, uh, the NAS reads night after night, which is, is probably a better rendering, this is a plural, um, indicating that it's, she's probably having a recurring dream of him, um, of seeking for him, 
She's probably not leaving her home every night and walking around town looking for him, literally. Um, and, and you see the intensity of, and repetition here. Uh, whom my soul loves, whom my soul loves. She, she cannot think of anyone else nor anything else to do at this moment but to find him. This, this, this occupies even her unconscious state. She yearns to be with him and with, with him alone. Her dream uh, mirrors how she is distraught or at least feels incomplete in real life without him. Um, notice uh, the intensity of her desire to be with him in the previous section that we just read when she, when she was asked by him to arise and go she declined and said go be a gazelle this is not the right time but now on her own accord in her dream what's she doing she's arising and going she's searching the house in her dream Strike one, can't find him. She's going out into the city, which was, was no safe place for a young woman to be in the middle of the night. Um, but strike two, can't find him. She sees the, the uh, second shift police officers you know, who are doing the night shift, who are making sure doors are locked and, and seeing how things are. Have you seen uh, the one I love? And we don't, we don't have their answer, but uh, clearly uh, they, they, they haven't seen him. Um, and uh, so strike three, she's, she's failing and distraught. Uh, and then just like that, he appears. Um, without, it seems, her even trying to, you know, to further look for him. So... It does draw a question, though the text doesn't question this, but it does draw a question in our minds. Why would he appear out of nowhere so easily after all this long searching, right? Didn't find him in my house, didn't find him in the city. The watchman had no idea. Uh, why, uh, after all that calling and looking and work, does he just appear out of nowhere? Well, the short answer is we don't know, right? So we, we, we don't know, but... Um, I believe that this is evidence of God's hand of providence, um, of showing how God is actually drawing these two together, um, despite, uh, or maybe even in spite of their own efforts, uh, his timing is perfect of when, even in this dream, when the two uh, will be together. So she finds him, she embraces him. She takes him home to her family. Um, and then, just like chapter 2, verse 7, she repeats the very same oath. And uh, we won't go back into the, the details of that, but, but it's important to see. She's, she knows, even, even in her dream, right? We, we break reality in dreams all the time. But even in her dream, she knows that God's way is best in terms of the restraint of physical intimacy at this point in their relationship. It's an astounding thing. Um, and it's not nearly so salacious as uh, we think Song of Solomon really uh, might think that it is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one, one of the points uh, that, that uh, 
we might take, uh, and, and maybe perhaps even for, uh, for those who are not yet married, um, know that there will be frustrating times uh, along the way. The, the frustrations will continue in, in marriage, but, 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 <laughs> but, but along the way, there will be misunderstandings and frustrations, and there'll be, uh, it'll feel like you're searching to grow this relationship and it just, you just keep striking out. It's just, just, just keep missing. Um, so it's glorious. It's a glorious pursuit, but, but uh, the, it can be frustrations as well. Um, okay. So let's move on. We are uh, going on in chapter 3, now verses 6 through 11. This is the wedding day that we've come to. Chapter 3, verse 6. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh, against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Okay. So we have, a, we have another new scene. Um, somebody is looking for something or someone, uh, as, a, as I'll argue here. The, the Hebrew here, the subject of this question is actually a feminine singular. So and you, both ESV and NAS, I think, have uh, what is that coming? What is that coming in the distance? Uh, just as many other translations have, uh, who is that coming? And, and we could render it just as well in English. Who is she that's coming in the distance, in this cloud? So that, how you, how you understand that question and how you answer it will drive the remainder of, of how you understand this section. Um, so it, and it, and it, is, uh, it is my um, understanding from the text here that I think that we are hearing either Solomon uh, or the daughters of Jerusalem speaking, not, not, uh, not her. So I don't think that this is Solomon coming in his carriage, but it is actually uh, the Shulamite being returned after he has sent his carriage and his 60 mighty men to go get her and to bring her to the wedding. So argument for, for this is, uh, look at it with me. Um, where is this coming from? Where is it coming from? Verse 6. The wilderness. Okay. Which way is it going? It's going up. Okay, so things that are coming from the wilderness and are going up, we see this elsewhere in the scripture. 
We have 15 psalms that we call the songs of ascent. These are, these are people who are making pilgrimages to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem, right, from the wilderness, from their homes. And I think that this, these are clues that give us the very same, same thing, that, that um, Solomon has sent his men on a mission with his uh, transport, his royal transport, to go and retrieve his bride. And they are returning from the wilderness from Shunem, which is up near uh, the Sea of Galilee, out of the wilderness, coming up to Jerusalem with his bride. Um, <clears throat> so I believe that the, the most straightforward view of this is to see this from Solomon's vantage point. Um, so the question, the answer to the question, while true from the text, behold the litter of Solomon, the real answer to the question hasn't been given yet to who is that. Um, we're going to get it in, in the beginning of chapter 4, it, it, but it is the one that he loves. Um, he has surrounded her with, with a, just a crazy high number of, of the strongest armed men in his army uh, to, to both protect her in reality, but also to give her a sense of how beloved she is and to, and to make her know that she is secure as she comes. Um, recognize the difference between that and her dream that we just read where she's out in the middle of the city by herself uh, at risk um, in danger and now she is surrounded by these men um, her transport is or his transport is perfumed uh, with with uh, every fragrant powder that money could buy um, it's made of the finest wood uh, it is uh, and precious metals, luxuriant fabrics, it's truly fit for a queen. And in verse 11 now, we are called to look at Solomon. Um, he stands there, I believe, watching his bride-to-be approach. Uh, he's regal with his crown on, uh, and it's the happiest day of his life. So um, one of the habits that I, I have when I attend a wedding um, is as the bride, as the doors open and the bride is coming down the aisle, I always want to turn and just see the look on that groom's face. And I, I know some of you also do that. And now we have a verse that I think gives us justification to do just that. Because the daughters of Zion are called to look and behold Solomon on the happiest day of his life as his bride approaches. Um, the, the summary here uh, is that the, the patient waiting of this couple is about to come to an end. Okay. We are on to chapter 4 now. And we're going we're gonna to get all of this. Uh, no, we're not. We're going to get seven verses. We've got small chunks here. Sorry. Uh, the first seven verses, because Solomon answers the question immediately, who is coming in this uh, transport. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins. She's not missing any teeth. Uh, not one of them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck 
is like a tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. We'll, we'll pause there. Um, and uh, his descriptions, right, they, they, they have a context that, that we don't grasp necessarily. Uh, we would not necessarily describe our beloved's neck as being a stone wall or a tower. But the point is it's regal, that it's attractive, that it is strong. Um, and it's decorated, you know, with uh, a thousand uh, ornaments, and it's beautiful to behold. Uh, he is, is lavishing her with compliments, and she understands and receives this. Uh, verse 6, he reflects back on her words to him, um, now stating that as the, the shadows flee and the day breathes, he will now not turn away from her, but instead he will turn to her until the next day is full. And to him, verse 7, she's perfect. She's without flaw. Um, yeah, one of the commentators I read um, indicated from, from Proverbs 31.30, where uh, Lemuel's mother says to him, uh, charm is deceitful and beauty is in vain, is, is great advice from a future mother-in-law to her son. Uh, but it's a quite a good thing uh, for a husband to enjoy and, and speak about the beauty of his wife. It's quite a good thing. All right, we're going to go on. Uh, this picks up its pace as we go through this just little bits at a time. Verses 8 through 11. Come with me. He, he, it's still him speaking. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinar and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. And we'll stop there as well. He is completely taken with her. And he, she had mentioned earlier how she was sick with love um, back in chapter 2. Uh, verse 5, he's, he's in the same boat now. He's, he's completely taken with her. Um, and he wishes to celebrate the fact that thou, they are together. The, all of these mountains described in, in the lions and the dens of leopards, right? The, the days of them being separated and in danger, uh, uh, separated from one another. And even the little foxes that might ruin their vineyard are over. And they are now together. So he is declaring the greatness of, of them to be inseparably together. You notice, what does he call her now that he hasn't called her before? My bride, my sister, my sister, my bride. Yeah, six times right here in this chapter. Uh, it, 
in each of the verses that we, the last four verses we just read. Um, so he has declared, when, when a man declares his being captivated uh, by a woman, that's, that's far more than just, you look nice today, which is a compliment that someone can just say thank you to, uh, and, and you, you move on. He's being vulnerable uh, with her, uh, where she, she can either accept or reject uh, that advance. He likens her speech to the promised land, uh, the land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, as before, uh, this song is an assault on the senses um, of sight and smell, um, of taste, but also touch and sound as uh, he is rejoicing in her coming. All right, verses 12 through 16 now. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon. With all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. So he, the, the imagery now changes to one of a garden. And he's describing her that as she has been up to now a, a locked and secret garden, not, not sharing physical intimacy with any, including with the one that she loves. And... I think that we are seeing here echoes of the Garden of Eden, uh, talking of the choicest fruits, of, of extravagant and glorious spices and fragrance, all the way from the common, uh, which is henna, which was everywhere, to the exotic uh, nard, which was nowhere, things from all over the world. This is, this is a garden, this is a spice garden that could not exist at any place on the planet in reality, because these things were from different continents and places that were, had different climates. Um, so he's, he's describing a, a place where, where all the best of all the world is gathered in one place. Um, a well of living water, flowing streams, um, not, not merely pools and cisterns of, of water that's, that's just sitting there, uh, but, but fresh, refreshing water that is a spring um, and now, as we finish, I'll read verse 16 again and go through chapter 5, verse 1. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden and let its spices flow. She says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat of its choicest fruits. He says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride, I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then others say, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. So this, this is the pinnacle of the entire book. And, and in poetic fashion, it's the very center. There are the same number of lines of poetry before and after this this statement in chapter 5, verse 1. And we see that, that the language has moved from description to action. In short, this is the consummation of, of their love, of their physical intimacy. 
Um, he calls upon the winds to unlock her garden, which he now calls my garden as well. And she declares in the second half of verse 16 that indeed it is now his garden. Uh, her, her life is not her own. His life is not his own. Uh, they have committed to one another uh, in, a, in a way that is inseparable. Uh, he accepts the invitation, and a benediction is pronounced over the couple. This blessing to eat and drink deeply of this love. There's, there's no inhibition or holding back. Uh, the language is, is, is really stark of being immersed, um, moved, intoxicated with this love. And again, we, we return to, to the, the point that I started with, and that is, who could, who could speak this benediction uh, upon this love? Who could, who could bless this relationship uh, in this way? And I, and I believe that though it's not stated here, that this is the, the blessing from the Lord, that this is his voice speaking blessing over the consummation of this relationship. Um, it's the same unspoken voice that is behind what had prompted her earlier to restrain uh, and to, to abstain from physical intimacy when the time was not right is now the same voice that's blessing uh, them when the time is right. Okay, so the, the application or summary on this is not hard to, to understand. Um, while we are not to be driven by our desires... Uh, or to ignore God's prohibition on intimacy outside of marriage, neither should, be, should we be squeamish or hesitant um, within marriage about intimacy, but, but we're called on to enjoy fully every good gift uh, that the Lord has given to us uh, as married people, uh, including uh, physical intimacy with one, with one spouse. Um, all right, so... That brings uh, us to the end of this uh, section and, and study for today. Uh, next week, we'll get the rest of this, which will be four more chapters, so we'll have a pretty good clip as we, as we come out of this. But let me pray, and we'll have a couple announcements. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the truth that is in it. God, we rejoice in every good gift that you give and every boundary uh, and fence that you put up for our good and for your glory. Thank you again for the opportunity to look at this uh, book that, uh, quite frankly, is not studied uh, as, as much as many others, uh, but is, is full of uh, great truth for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.